Then you guys can have a seat. Well, it's good to be with you. Uh, if you're new or visiting, my name's Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here at the Austin Stone. I lead our downtown congregation. If you have a Bible, go and open up to Matthew 10. Matthew 10. Well, we wish you guys a very Merry Christmas. If you're not going to be here with our Christmas Eve services, I'm glad uh, that you're here. I hope that this season of Advent, you've been able, um, in the midst of all, all that's going on, you've been able to begin to prepare your heart for what this means. And if not, and you feel your heart's just so distant, uh, it's a good thing there's still time. Because the, the reason, just really, really quickly, the reason Christians celebrate holidays like Christmas, holidays like Easter, is they're meant to serve as a tangible reminder to you that we have a historical face, faith. That the nature of our faith is that it's historical in nature. That God didn't just merely come to us as an idea. He didn't come to us as a book. He didn't come to us in our hearts and our minds. He didn't come to us as some sort of ancient myth that we were never meant to look at as actual history. The point of Christmas is for the global church. And think about that. The global church, all of your brothers and sisters from every tribe, tongue, and, and language, they're gathering together, doing the same thing we're doing. They're thinking about what does it mean that God came to us? And the hope is that for the onlooking world that every year we'd have this time where we would remember there was an actual day where Jesus was born. An actual day where his skin hit the air for the first time. A day where he was born into a family and he was vulnerable just like us. A day where he became just like you and me. And so we've been studying his life and his ministry through the Gospel of Matthew and hopefully through the Gospel of Matthew, you've gotten to see who Jesus actually is and a more well-rounded picture of him. And the text today is going to shed light on Christmas and families and how those dynamics are changed in Jesus. Now, we're going to read this text, and in a second, when we read the text, this is going to feel like the most anti-Christmas sermon ever, okay? And I want you to know it actually has relevance for what we're talking about for Christmas time. And even if the sermon's terrible, the great thing of the Austin Stone, the worship won't be. It'll be awesome afterwards. So it's great about the Austin Stone. Even if the preaching's not any good, the worship will be great. So um, Matthew 10, verse 34, here's the word of God we're looking at today. Here's what Jesus Christ taught us. He says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or, or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You're probably thinking, this church really hates Christmas, okay? I doubt many, it's not one of those texts you read at Christmas a lot. I doubt many of you are thinking Christmas Day, I'm gonna get people together, get some hot chocolate, and I'm gonna read them this text so they know how little I care about them. Like, I want them to know, before we get started, I love Jesus more than you. Like, like that, that's what it feels like. But as contrary as this text feels towards Christmas, the story of love and joy and peace and compassion, there's actually, I think, a lot to learn about Christmas through this text. So two points today, that's all we're gonna do. Two points is this. The first one is, the peace of Jesus isn't without conflict and upheaval. Secondly, 
Jesus disrupts families in order to bring life. So let's look back at verse 34, the first point. The peace of Jesus isn't without conflict and upheaval. Verse 34, this is the one that is shocking in the light of Christmas. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, when you first read this verse, it's pretty difficult to understand what what does Jesus mean in light of everything we know about him from the gospels? And especially what we celebrate about Christmas. I mean, in the Gospel of Matthew, we have read story after story of him bringing peace to people's lives and to the world around him in very dramatic ways. He's brought order and clarity through the teaching of his word. He's brought health and wholeness through the healing of sickness. He's brought soundness of mind through casting out of demons. He's even stopped the chaos of a storm with the power of his word over creation. Again and again, though, the gospel of Matthew, his immense compassion and power to bring peace in the midst of chaos and anxiety in our lives is apparent. And then on top of this, at Christmas, one of the things we celebrate explicitly is the fact that Jesus came to bring us peace. When Jesus was born, God sent angels to announce the birth of his son to lowly shepherds that nobody cared about. And of all the things they could have announced about Jesus being born to humanity, they chose to announce the nature of his kingdom being one of peace. Look at Luke 2, 13 through 14. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. And on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. Of all the things they could have emphasized about Jesus, it's the peace he brings. Now I want you to notice in that text really quickly, it's on earth peace, it says, among those with whom he is pleased. That's gonna give clarity to what Jesus means with the sword language, is that he's bringing peace to those with whom he's pleased, but he will be divisive with those with whom he's not pleased. But then think about the the names that are prophesied about in Isaiah, about the child born to us, that God would send the Messiah. One of his names for the Messiah is Prince of Peace, Isaiah Nine, six through seven. This is hundreds of years before Jesus' birth. It says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Notice, peace is one of his names. Now get in that text, look really quickly, that peace is not contrary to justice and righteousness. That's going to give clarity to what the kind of peace that he brings. But this idea of peace is one of the greatest promises, one of the greatest experiences of knowing God through Jesus. The idea is that there's actually a way to have peace in your soul with God through Jesus that you cannot, you cannot get anywhere else. You cannot get through anyone else. Now this doesn't mean that Christians are always peaceful but it does mean that through Jesus, we always have access to his peace. And I've just had actually a fresh experience of this reality recently. Like everyone in this room, like everybody in this room, um, anxiety, worry, it's a constant battle for me. I know some in here have more pronounced difficulties because your issue is clinical in nature, but all of us wrestle with anxiety and worry. I mean, just this last week, 
Um, at midnight, as is my children's custom, they ruined my sleep. And they came into our bed at midnight. And that, like, you know this, you wake up in the middle of the night and your mind begins to race with all the things you're worried about. And I, my mind began to race. They were back to sleep and I couldn't go back to sleep. And I was up from midnight till about three because I just could not get my mind to calm down. I could not get my heart to quit racing about all the things I was stressed with, all the things I was anxious about. And I tell you that because I've by no means overcome anxiety, overcome worry, but I have begun to experience the peace of God in a way I never have before. I I found that there's depths of peace that he has for us that I've never known personally. And that's, that's what it's like to follow Jesus, by the way. You go through these seasons and he shows you new depths of his love, new depths of his wisdom. And it's so extraordinary, you think, was I a Christian before? That's why you go back, like, when were you first a believer? Like, it was either when I was 10 or 17 or 22 or 35. Like, you, there's just so many, because what's happening is he's showing you more depths. And it's so incredible that it makes you think, I never knew anything before. And just recently, I've felt this peace and I've experienced this peace in ways I never have. And I could walk you through all the different stories and circumstances that were causing me anxiety over the last decade or so. But as I was thinking about it and writing this, I began to realize, well, the way anxiety works is sometimes it's big things, but usually it's little things building up over time. It's hard to explain that. But all the things that I began to think about as I was writing this and thinking about things that have caused me worry, they're all things you go through. It's not unique to me. It's what all of us go through. It's relational strain. It's financial stress. It's work dynamics. It's historic hurts in your life. It's self-loathing and insecurity. It's suffering in your life, suffering around your life. And all those experiences that disrupt any semblance of peace in our lives. And I remember the day over the last several months, I've had this sense of peace that I've never had before. And I remember the day when I first kind of recognized that it happened. It was that first day of fall where it was, it was November and finally not, not 90 kind of thing. And I remember sitting there and it was like 65 and sunny and perfect. And Lauren and Eliza left to go pick up the other kids from school. And I'm sitting there on my front patio and I'm looking and I'm kind of staring out all pensively as you do on your day off. I'm sure my neighbors think, what is he doing? Like, I don't know. Just staring off into space. And I sat there and it hit me. I'm not stressed out right now. And it was so weird. I, I was sitting there and I began to realize like, I'm not thinking about a word someone said to me and obsessing over it. Do you know how that happens where someone says something and you find yourself in your free time just obsessing over how they said it and what they said or how you respond and what you should have said? I found myself sitting there not worrying about some potential future disaster that may happen in my family or my life or this church. I found myself not this kind of low-level fear of I'll never be who I think I should be. And I sat there and I was like, what is happening? I, I remember almost, almost in my mind, like searching frantically in, in my heart, kind of going, wait, is there, there's gotta be something there. But I couldn't find turmoil, I couldn't find angst that is, for most of us, pretty constant and regular. And it was like nothing I'd known. I remember talking to Lauren afterwards because Lauren is so much more, um, so less anxious than I am. And I was like, is this what you feel all the time? She's like, yeah, it's pretty great. I was like, that sounds awesome. And as I sat there though, I, I was experiencing peace and how calm and soothing it is, but I realized something. The peace that I was experiencing had come through 
conflict. The peace I was experiencing had come through confrontation. It had come through Jesus dealing with my bitterness and dealing with my self-obsession and healing my hurts and dealing with my desire for control through conversations, through vulnerability, through my own personal failures. And he was dealing with the fact that all of us, we functionally want to be God and control everything. And it turns out when you want God's place and God's power, but you don't have his character or his attributes, you'll be completely overwhelmed by it because you can't spin the plates perfectly. That the only way for peace to come was through Jesus unearthing and dealing and challenging my false gods who couldn't save me. My false loves who couldn't come through in the ways that I needed and wanted. Hear this. Peace in your life requires the overthrowing of your status quo. It requires the overthrowing of our status quo. That's what Jesus means in Matthew 10, verse 34. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to, now notice, to the earth. Not peace to his people, but peace to the earth. He's going to be by nature divisive. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And the peace he brings, it comes through confrontation. Because the way we live our lives apart from Jesus does not bring the peace that we crave. Without Jesus, all of us in different ways, we're enslaved to these myths that we think we can control everything, determine everything. If we can just organize our circumstances perfectly, then I'd be content, then I'd be happy. That the idea is if my circumstances were perfect and pleasurable, then I'd be perfect and I'd be happy. But what does life teach you? That's not what life teaches you. Life teaches you, you get the thing that you want and you think, is that it? You get the thing that you want and it's great for a little bit, but then eventually you're like, I like something else. But honestly, more often than not, you strive for this future version of you this future version of your life that you can't ever seem to attain. Because even when you get the thing you wanted, the targets move. If I could just get this job, got it. It's not about the job, it's about the relationships. Okay, if I could just get the relationship, got it. Okay, not about relationships, it's about generosity. You, you pick the thing, it just keeps moving. And what you, you find yourself doing is, after I get past these couple of weeks, then I'll finally settle down. If I can just get past Christmas, then I'll be good. If I can just get past January, then I'll be good. It's always future-oriented, because that's what idolatry is. It always promises, it promises you a future that never actually happens. And while all along, all along, the peace that we desire, Jesus is saying, it's not found in circumstance, not found in a person, it's actually found in God, but here's the catch. It requires submission to him. And this is the problem we have. We'd like the peace of God without submitting to him. This is the human condition. You want God's gifts, you don't want him. Our dysfunction is I want your stuff. I want the blessings, but I don't really want you. Jesus came to bring a sword to cut through that and reveal that to you. He came to bring a sword to dismantle the notion that there's any lasting life or peace apart from God. 
It's Eden all over again. It's trying to tell you there's no life out there. And his sword is that of a surgeon who has to cut in order to heal. That's what he's saying. He has to cut in order to heal. So I want you to know his peace is not without conflict and confrontation and upheaval. And then of all the, of all the places that Jesus wants to demonstrate how this works, he chooses to address the family. Of all the places he can, he can use this idea that he came to bring a sword on the earth, he says, point two, Jesus disrupts families in order to bring life. So verse 35, for I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, which makes sense. And... <laughs> And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, this is a stark passage. And it's meant to be. It's meant to be stark. Now, it's not as bleak as it probably feels like. And actually, what we're going to see, I hope you see, is that Jesus' word here actually makes families healthier. But when you read this text, it's easy to understand why Jesus was so divisive. It's easy to understand why he was murdered. Because we value family in our culture, we do, but not nearly as much as the one Jesus was speaking to. I mean, the culture he's speaking to, and uh, for clarity's sake, for many cultures still around the world, even in this country, the family unit was everything. I mean everything, it's your meaning, it's your purpose, it's your validation, it's your financial security, it was everything. So when he says this, his words are going to immediately raise so many flags of concerns in the people he's talking to. But here's his point, let me just put it really bluntly and clearly. To follow him, to have him, you must have greater loyalty and love for him than your own family. Not saying it will come to this, but if you were forced to choose between honoring him and honoring your family, that you would choose him. If you had to choose who you would serve and who you would sacrifice for, his point is we would choose him over anyone. Now, for some of you, if you're at odds with your family right now, you don't really like them that much, you're like, this sounds great, I'm all in on this thing. Okay, Jesus is great. But this is a really difficult reality to embrace when you think about it over a lifetime. When you think about this over a lifetime. So when I was 21, when I was 21, I wanted to be as free from my parents as much as possible. So this, once again, sounded pretty great. Because I, I wanted to be different than them. I wanted to be like, yeah, I love Jesus more than you. I still like you to pay for stuff, but I love Jesus more than you. But this, this text hits me different now when, you have, when I have three children of my own. It hits you different. It feels different. Because the longer you live, the more you understand just the unique nature and value of family. Even if it's not the family that you want, you still realize through all the ebbs and flows and transitions you go through life, family are uniquely situated to be there for you. And Jesus' understanding of himself, of the kingdom of God, is that there, no matter how valuable or good the gift is, family is a gift. 
no matter how good the gift is, there can be no competitors or rivals to him. Because God doesn't share his glory with any family name other than his own. Now, before you think this means Jesus wants you to hate your family, like buckle up on Christmas Day, that, that's, that's not what he's saying, or to love your family mildly, look at what Jesus specifically said, verse 37. He says, whoever loves father or mother more than me, whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He says, whoever loves them more, not whoever loves them at all, not whoever loves them deeply. Jesus is separating himself from all their loves in our life, but not so that we would love people less, listen, so that we would love them rightly. Not so that we would love them less, but that we'd love them rightly in light of him. Jesus commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves. There are New Testament texts that say, if you don't take care of your family, you're worse than those who don't believe. Family is important in the kingdom of God. I mean, the new heavens, new earth, we're resurrected into the family of God. Family is an important concept in the scriptures. So he's not saying feel guilty if you love your family deeply. Feel guilty if you love son or daughter, mother or father, brother or sister deeply. He's not saying that. He's just saying, however deeply you love your family, love him more. But nowhere is this more complicated or nuanced than in family because they have the most history with you and they have the greatest expectations on you. That's why family is complicated. And Christmas is unique because the, the, Christmas has this way, and, and the kind of holiday season has this way of putting the state of your family on full display. It just does. Like from Thanksgiving to Christmas, it just serves as this reflection, this window, so to speak, into where your family is, good, bad, or indifferent. And this is why, I don't know if you ever have realized this or been told this, but from a counseling and pastoral perspective, we typically see a, a rise in issues and in sorrows come up in people's lives during this season because it's a window into family and all that that means. And so, so much family history and hurt and loss and confusion and shame, it's kind of, it kind of settles to the bottom of your heart and this season kind of stirs it back up fresh. And you walk back into the, that home you grew up in and all the memories flood back. You see that person and all the old emotions flood back. So for some of you, I know this season is a lot. No, you're not alone in that. And for others of us, for others of us, this time is really exciting because it, it, it celebrates the nature of the grace God has on your family. And you're ex- you shouldn't feel bad if you're excited about Christmas. You shouldn't feel bad if you're excited to see people that you love. Those are sweet, sweet seasons. So if that is your experience, enjoy that. Maybe don't post about it so we don't see it, but enjoy it. I don't want to see your happiness. Um, and others of you, you don't honestly feel much about Christmas because your family is so disconnected and distant and so you don't really, there's not much going on in your heart. But for all those scenarios, Jesus telling us to love him more is actually what every family needs to be healthy and whole. We should love Jesus more because he's superior to your family. He's superior to any family. Few people have more power over you than your family members. 
And they use it for all sorts of purposes. Jesus has even more power over you and he never uses it to abuse or to manipulate or to stonewall. He always uses his power to serve. No one knows you like your family and where you grew up. No one knows your story and your struggles and your weaknesses like your family. Jesus knows you even better and he never uses that knowledge to shame you. He uses it to save you. Some of us are still driven by words our family has spoken to us in negative ways. You don't want to be that or, that thi- or you think that's who you are. And our family uses their words all the time without even realizing it. Even the silence of our families does damage to us. But Jesus has even more wisdom about you. And he doesn't speak lies. He isn't domineering. And he isn't passive aggressive, amen, but he teaches you truth. And he does it with wisdom and kindness and patience and clarity. And your family, even the best family, will make promises and purposes for your life, but we're weak. And even the best intentions can't overcome things like sickness and death. But for Jesus, nothing can stop him from fulfilling every promise and purpose he has for you. Sickness, Satan, sin, death, they have no dominion over him. He's already conquered them through his death and resurrection. He's better. He should be loved more because no one can compete or compare with him. So when Jesus is king, here's the good news. When he's king and he's your greatest love, then our family can just be people. They can just be people we're called to love instead of little gods we worship who disappoint us. Jesus frees us up to enjoy others more. When Jesus is central and he's your God, then it frees other people up. Because your family may be broken, your family may be great, but since they don't have the last word over your life, the pressure's off them. Now this doesn't mean that our families can't hurt us, they absolutely can. It doesn't mean we shouldn't mourn when they do, or we can't hurt them, we absolutely can. But what it means is that their response or who they are doesn't determine and define who we are. When Jesus is your greatest love, who you are is outside of them. So now if they fail you, you can deal with it as a person failing you, not your God failing you. Now when you fail them, you can be honest and own up and not feel like if I recognize my failure, then I lose everything. They become people, not gods. So for this Christmas, it frees me up to just enjoy my kids for who they are and not get mad when they play with the box more than the gift that I bought them, okay? It's a waste of my money, but now I I can just enjoy it. Or when they complain relentlessly, I can just go, this is my Christmas, like I can just enjoy it. Or I I can enjoy, you can enjoy great dinner. If you have like a great dinner with your family, you can enjoy that for what it is. It is a gift from God to you. Like if you have that moment, just soak it up. Do not feel guilty when God gives you gifts. Just give him honor and credit for it. But then also, you can be sober-minded when the latest political conversation comes up and you can stay a Christian in that moment, right? We can enjoy our family now in ways. You can disagree with your family but not belittle them and still be kind and respectful. 
And you can be content and go with the flow when you try to lead a family devotional on Christmas Day and it falls very, very flat. I know that from personal experience. Loving Jesus above all doesn't decrease our love for our families. It purifies it. It purifies it. So instead of serving them out of guilt or serving them because we think they deserve it, we serve because we've been served. Instead of holding grudges, we forgive because we've been forgiven. Instead of hoarding, we give freely because Jesus became poor for us so we could be rich in God. Instead of being tossed to and fro by every word and opinion, we can speak the truth in love and in kindness because Jesus is in control. And his work has already been finished. And instead of defending ourselves and hiding our sins, we can be the first to say we're sorry and the first to ask for forgiveness because we have a name in Christ that our failures can't touch. It's the constant supply of this grace-filled love that Jesus is constantly giving. No one else is as full as him. So when you come to Jesus, he's not needy like everybody else. He can, you can be needy with him. And it's that constant supply of grace-filled love that Jesus has for us that keeps our love for our family fresh even when we want to give up, even when we want to be indifferent, even when we want to be passive. Because to serve and love our families in light of who Jesus is will be costly. But the promise always is if you lose with him, if you lose with him, if you lose for him, His promise is you gain everything. You gain life. Verses 38 through 39, he closes with a promise. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is the counterintuitive way of the kingdom of God. You have to lose to gain. That the way up to greatness are the steps down into service. That the weak are the strong ones. That the meek inherit the earth. And that the peacemakers are called children of God. And that a baby boy, a baby boy named Jesus is where God dwelled with us. So I wanna close our time a little differently than we typically do. We're gonna close our time together and we're gonna spend time praying together for our families and this Christmas year or whoever you're spending Christmas with. So oftentimes, here's what happens. Here's why we're gonna do this. Oftentimes you come into this season, this Christmas time, and you have never prayed less or read your Bible less, right? And so you come in and you're already in the red and you see that person, you're like, I'm ready to fight right now. Like you, you, just, you can feel, I'm not ready for this conversation. I'm not ready for this. I'm not ready to serve. So I want us to be intentional and spend time praying together. So here in just a second, here in just a second, you're, you're gonna get to know someone around you. You're gonna turn your chairs to each other and you're gonna get to know somebody and you're, we're gonna spend time praying um, for, for two things in particular. We're gonna lament and hope together and we're gonna pray for wonder and peace together. So go ahead right now, turn your chairs Get in groups of three or four, introduce yourself, circle up, and then we're going to pray.
All right. And if you're new and this is your worst nightmare, hang in there, okay? Um, and let me say this, if, if you're in these circles, if you're a partner of the Austin Stone, I, I need you to lead out on this. I need you to model for maybe visitors who are here who aren't going to just jump into praying. You need to model for how to do this. So if you're a partner, feel that responsibility to pray and to model what it looks like. But we're gonna, here's how this is gonna work. In these groups of three and four, you're gonna take turns one at a time praying with one another. And what's great about this is hearing someone else pray helps you pray as the way the spirit of God works. Here's the first thing that we're gonna pray for. Lament and hope. Lament and hope. We're gonna pray your sorrows and your grief and pray your aspirations of love and healing. So let me just give you a little context. Praying in lament is praying your griefs and sorrows to God. Praying in lament is being honest about the aches and pains of relationships, the hurts that echo in your heart, the deaths that you've experienced, the painful words that ring in your mind, and the fears that you just can't shake. You don't have, you don't have to be strong for God. You do have to be strong for other people in your life, but you don't have to be strong for him. And one of the things about maturity in Christ is learning how to be sad in faith. So again, if you're here and you're a partner and you have something to lament, to ache over and in your prayers, go first so other people, because the more I get to know people as a pastor, everybody's dealing with something. So be the first to do that. Be vulnerable for the people around you. So you're gonna pray your pain and then you're gonna pray your aspirations, your hope. You wanna pray and lament, you wanna be honest. You just wanna pray in hope and confidence that God is stronger than everything, than every circumstance and every sorrow. And this is where you say, God, I don't wanna give up on your ability to heal, to sustain, to restore, to save. I know there are people you wanna give up on. I know what Christmas does. It reminds you of all the ways you've tried and failed or the people who steal your joy. But pray in faith that Jesus who paid for your sins, who lives and reigns over us, has given you his spirit so you can have hope in the midst of everything. So right now, together, pray and lament and pray and hope. Go ahead, do that now.
Father, one of the most difficult things for us to do is just to tell you how weak we are and how sad we are. Jesus, of all, of all the ways you could have been described, God called you a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Jesus, I love that you're not scared of our sadness because you felt it. You know what it's like to lose. And God, for so many of us, we enter back into this time of family and it just reminds us of things we've lost or ways we failed or words that have been said or shame we feel and God, I'm, I'm sad that my grandmother isn't here this Christmas. I'm sad for all the dynamics of family that still aren't what they should be. And there's so many times I've prayed and I haven't, I've wondered where you are. There's so many times I've asked you to do things that you haven't seemed to do. And yet, God, because of the resurrection, I can still have hope in the midst of it. Because you're alive, Jesus, I can have the faith to know that you're not done with us. You're not done with our families. You can still save. You can still heal. And so, God, I want you to do that. I don't want hearts to grow jaded. I don't want hearts to grow cold. God, I want to believe in your promises and your power. Because God, you've given us the spirit of resurrection from the dead. You've given us the power of the resurrection in each of us, not so that we would be made much of, but God, so that you would. And so God, for all the aspirations in this room, for all the longings in this room, help your people be ones who cry out to you who can do the impossible. Who somehow, God, you came to us in a baby boy. So restoring that relationship is easy for you. Healing that sickness is easy for you. So God, we beg and hope that you would do what only you can and that we would be a means by which you do that. Jesus, we love you because you lead us like no other. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. One more prayer point. One more. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray for wonder and peace. So you're going to pray for God to show you the wonder that Jesus came to us and the peace he gives you. And then for peace, pray for God to make you a peacemaker in every room and every relationship. So we're going to pray for the wonder that you would have wonder at the reality that God has come to you through Jesus. Here, here's the thing that's hard about being human. It's not that God gets less wonderful and awe-inspiring and glorious is that our hearts get dull. And so we have to pray, I have to pray constantly, God, wake me up. I can still get excited about a lot of different things, but I'm struggling to be excited about you. So just spend the, you're gonna spend that time just praying, God, give me eyes to see the grandeur of what it means that you've come to us. And then secondly, pray for peace to overflow through you. God has given you peace with him. 
You have peace with God now because of Jesus. And I want you to pray that you trust in his sovereignty and his goodness, that in every situation, literally, you have the mindset of every room I'm in and every relationship this season, I wanna be the one who strives for peace even when no one else wants to. That I'd be the peacemaker, that I'd be the child of God he's called me to be. So pray for wonder, pray for peace, do that together, do it now.
Father, we have to confess to you that you could paint the most beautiful picture of what your love is like. You could do the greatest miracle. And God, if you don't stoke our hearts and Holy Spirit, you don't let us see afresh, we will grow dull to you. God, how easy we look at the glories that you've done in history and in our lives, and we grow dull, and we question, and we wonder. And so, God, would you please, in a unique way, help us see the wonder of wonders that you've came to us in Jesus. Help us see the wonder of wonders that you fit all of eternity and all of your attributes into a baby boy born to us. And that he was born so he could know what it's like to be us, to suffer with us, to suffer for us. God, we don't want to think about and talk about Jesus and have the eyes of our hearts roll and think we've heard this song before. We've said this thing before. We know what's true. We have the right doctrine. God, I want you to enliven us to see he is the most beautiful being, the most alluring person in the universe. Jesus, there's literally not one person who can compare to you. And I want to see. I don't want to be dull to you. I don't want to be distant from you. I want to see clearly who you are. And I want Christmas to remind us. I want the traditions to remind us. I want the nostalgia to remind us that there's a homecoming that can't be taken away. There's a homecoming that can't be corrupted. That there's a homecoming that no sickness or cancer can touch. We want to see. And so God, when we see the glories of Jesus, God, help us serve other people. In every relationship, in every room, even the ones we're terrified of, even the ones we're already frustrated about, even the issues we don't want to deal with, God, help us serve in ways that people don't deserve. Help us do small things like do dishes and cook great meals. God, help us be the most encouraging people in every room. That no one would see your grace more clearly in even the smallest of ways than us. And that we'd be a taste of heaven for our families this season. And God, we can pray all these things in hope and in power and expectation because Jesus, your promise to your people is that you'll be with us. So be with us, help us. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Amen, church. Let's sing, let's stand together.